Welcome to the weekly message from Rama Family Church. It is our hope that as you listen to this message, you will come to know Jesus better and be established in your faith and equipped for the work of the ministry. You can view the sermon notes and listen online at rama.org.au forward slash media. Well, good evening, church. Welcome again to Christian uh, Worldview. And so um, what a privilege it is to be here to be able to share again. Um, if you're just joining us for the first time, um, we've been going over the Christian worldview over the last few months, talking about some of those deeper, bigger questions uh, in life um, about origin and meaning and purpose. And um, we come to what tonight is, it would be an understatement to say that this is the central claim of the Christian worldview, um, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, such an important and foundational point in the Christian worldview. And so, due to this fact of it being so central, um, it is absolutely crucial that we understand what it is from a historical point of view as believers. Tonight we want to cover three main topics, um, main points. And so the first is the historical facts. What exactly are we talking about when we say that there are historical facts that support the explanation of the resurrection? What are those facts? Number two, explanation of those facts. So when you gather the totality of the facts, what are the current explanations? Um, What are some of the differing explanations of those facts? And number three, what is the significance of the resurrection hypothesis. So before we dive in, let's just start with some with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. And Lord, we thank you that it is powerful, that Lord, it, it brings to light truth, Lord. It, it brings to light all these things, God, that affect our lives in such deep ways. And we just ask tonight, God, that you speak clearly through me. And Lord, that You give people ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive from you, Lord. And I admit, God, that um, without you I can't do this. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you help me to um, explain exactly, clearly, Lord, what it is that you have put on my heart this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we want to start, tonight for for where we're starting, we want to draw from... um, the variety of ministries and teachers that um, have helped prepare me for this evening. Uh, Ministries such as Reasonable Faith with Dr. William Lane Craig and other scholars and teachers such as Gary Habermas, Mike Lacona, uh, Tim and Lydia McGrew, um, Jay Warner Wallace, uh, Sean McDowell and his father Josh McDowell and so on and so forth, just to name a few. If anyone is interested in going further into the resurrection, these are a few of the people I highly recommend. Has anyone here experienced opposition when sharing the gospel? Someone might say, I was all with you about the God stuff, but when you started mentioning Jesus, I don't really think that God is the Christian God. Anyone experienced something like that? This attitude is all too typical today. Most people are happy to agree that God exists, but when it comes to God decisively revealing himself in the person of Jesus, in our current pluralistic society today, um, it's not considered an established fact, and it's highly disputed, to say the least. What justification can Christians offer in contrast to Hindus, Jews, and Muslims for thinking that the Christian God is real? The answer of the New Testament is the resurrection of Jesus. God will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17 verse 31. The resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus' radical personal claims to divine authority. So, How do we know that Jesus is risen from the dead? The Easter hymn writer says, You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. This answer is perfectly appropriate on an individual level. But when a Christian 
engages unbelievers in the public sphere, such as letters to the editor in a local newspaper or on the radio, or just communicating with fellow um, co-workers, it is crucial that we be able to present objective evidence in support of our beliefs. Otherwise, our claims hold no more water than the assertions of anyone else claiming to have had an experience with God. Fortunately, Christians, as a faith rooted in history, makes claims, Christianity as a faith rooted in history, makes claims that can, in important measure, be tested historically and investigated historically. To the person who might respond, I have no need to be acquainted with the historical Jesus, I only need faith, then this, tonight's message is for you. For one cannot separate the theological Jesus from the historical Jesus. And so whatever faith one may have in Jesus, if it is not in the historical Jesus who is physically resurrected, then it is not, in, not a faith in the Jesus that will save you. Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain, or our faith is in vain, and then we are still in our sins. Christianity and the historical resurrection either stand or fall together. If the resurrection did not happen, then it is of little significance. Jesus would just yet be another false teacher claiming to be God. And so... On, on that note, good luck to us all. But if Jesus actually did rise from the dead, then nothing could be more important. Before we address the relevant facts, let us first consider the nature of facts. As with anything, there is always some level of disagreement when you come to what is considered an established fact and what is not. So when assessing historical data that is as old as what we're looking at, roughly 2,000 years, not everyone considers an established fact to be so established. We have a number of uh, growing people who consider themselves to be flat earthers. They reject the current understanding of the earth being a globe spherical shape and they think that it's quite flat or something other than a globe. You can YouTube them, it's, it's quite a fun um, search. They my, another example is um, I won't mention her name, but my auntie, some many years ago, um, she attempted to put poison ivy on my hand after I got stung by a hornet because she thought it was a fact that poison ivy reduced pain and inflammation from a sting. So um, luckily, um, I think my parents' common sense kicked in and you know, that, that didn't end up happening. Um, but the point is, not everybody considers something to be an established fact. There are different views on what is factual and what is not. So, if 100% concurrence or agreement is not the best measurement of what is factual, what is? How can we know something is a fact? According to the Oxford Dictionary, a fact is defined as a thing that is known or proved to be true. Some similar words that are used are reality, actuality, truth, certainty, or verity. So what criteria determines whether something's factual? Something's factual if it objectively matches or lines up with what is known to be true. That, that is quite broad. But it, it's a lot easier to identify a fact in any present time, as you often have first-hand access to the experience or an event. However, when when you consider a fact in history, such as 2,000 years ago, it's a lot harder to go through those and consider them factual or not because it's so far removed from the present moment. A common way to establish a historical fact is to see if the proposition or claim had had multiple attestations or was considered a majority view. Now, just because something's a majority view doesn't make it true, but it's one of the indicators to determine whether something is factual or not. This makes it even stronger if there are eyewitnesses that recorded their experiences early enough, which seems to complement other known facts in that era or that time. Suppose then, for tonight's purposes, that we approach the New Testament writings not as inspired scripture, but merely as a collection of Greek documents coming to us from the first century, without any assumption to their reliability 
other than the way that we normally regard other sources of ancient history. To make sure I'm not misunderstood, uh, this is in no way to deny the doctrine, Christian doctrine or teaching of um, inspiration of Scripture or inerrancy of Scripture. This is just rather to simply um, restrict our focus tonight on just the historical grounds. We may be surprised to learn that the majority of New Testament critics investigating the Gospels in this way accept the central facts that undergird the resurrection of, of Jesus. I want to emphasize that I'm not talking about just evangelical or conservative scholars only, but about the broad spectrum of the New Testament critics who teach at secular universities and non-conservative um, seminaries, non-evangelical seminaries. Amazing as it may seem, most of them have come to regard as historical the basic facts that surround the life and ministry of Jesus and the resurrection. These facts are as follows. Fact number one, the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. The crucifixion of Christ is considered by almost all historians to be the single most independently attested and most verified ancient historical fact of all historical facts, especially of antiquity, going that far back. This is the big dog of not only the Christian faith, but it's the big dog of history. Needless to say, before a crucifixion can take place, there first must exist the object to which the crucifixion can occur. In other words, before Jesus can be crucified and die by crucifixion, he must first have lived. But not everyone agrees that Jesus even lived to begin with. Some historians, such as Richard Carrier, when addressing the subject at hand, outright denies that Jesus ever lived. He essentially argues that Jesus was simply a copied mythological character from earlier deities, from earlier religions, only recontextualized to suit that current era for whatever, whatever reasons. One popular example that's often raised against Jesus' historicity is that of the ancient religious deities such as Horus or um, Mithra or um, Krishna, and, and there are many others. Rather than have me respond to this, I think I'll show a video that, that has um, Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy. Um, he can explain that probably more entertainingly than I can. So can we play that first video, please? Was Jesus based on the Egyptian god Horus? Many mysticists claim Jesus never existed. It was just a copy of the deity Horus. They claim there are several parallels which prove this, such as Horus was born of a virgin Isis on December 25th in a cave. A star in the east announced his birth, and he was visited by three wise men. He had an earthly father named Seb, which translates to Joseph. He was baptized by Anup the Baptizer. He had twelve disciples. He performed miracles, like walking on water, and raised El Osiris from the dead. He gave a sermon on the mount, was crucified between two thieves, buried for three days, and was resurrected. He was called Christ, Anointed One, the Way, the Truth, and the Light, Messiah, Son of Man, and many other titles that are applied to Jesus. So it is pretty clear the story of Jesus is just a myth copied from the deity Horus. Well, that might be true if any of these claims about Horus were in fact true. The fact is most of this nonsense is a lie, and we can't find it anywhere in ancient Egyptian literature. First off, Horus's mother Isis was not a virgin, it was actually married to Horus's father, Osiris, and she is shown in depictions of a falcon hovering over an erect Osiris. There is no reason to think Isis was a virgin, as most Egyptologists do not even claim this. One legend even has Isis sleeping with the dead body of Osiris, and Horus was conceived from that. So there is no reason to think Horus was born of a virgin. There is also no evidence Horus was born in a cave, let alone a manger. James Fraser says Horus was born in a swamp, and there is no evidence of a star in the east or three wise men. Let's also remember in the Gospels, it doesn't say three wise men visited Jesus. It says an untold amount of magi visited Christ after his birth, but it never says three. As for December 25th, this also cannot be confirmed. One reference has Horus being born in November, whereas Plutarch says Horus was said to have been born around the winter solstice, but there is no evidence for the 25th in particular. Also, Jesus was never confirmed to have been born on December 25th. It was just an estimate based on early calculations, but never confirmed or written in the New Testament. Seb was never said to be Horus' earthly father. In fact, Seb was a god 
the god of the earth, or the earth itself, and there is no linguistic connection to the name of Joseph. Some references say Seb was the father of Osiris, not Horus. There is no Egyptian scholar who has ever heard of Anup the Baptizer. This was just made up out of thin air by mysticists. Horus was never said to have 12 disciples. Some legends say he had four, and some just say he had an untold amount. Horus did perform miracles, but that would be expected from any deity. As for walking on water, there is no evidence of this. He also didn't raise Osiris from the dead. Osiris didn't come back to life, but remained in the underworld to serve as god of the dead. Plus, there is no evidence Osiris was ever referred to with the prefix L. This is just not true in Egyptian mythology. There is no evidence Horus gave a sermon on the mount, no evidence he was crucified, let alone between two thieves, no evidence he was buried, and no evidence he was resurrected. He was never called Christ, Anointed One, the Way, the Truth, and the Light, or any of these titles commonly associated with Jesus. Modern mysticists have simply lied, or lack any ability to do accurate research, because all of these supposed claims about Horus simply do not exist in Egyptian mythology. And until these mysticists provide actual original source evidence for these claims, there is no reason to believe them. So since that is the case, there is no evidence Jesus was a myth based on Horus. Pretty interesting, hey. That's Michael Jones, by the way. He's, he's awesome. You can follow him on um, YouTube um, or Facebook. Inspiring philosophy. So when you hear somebody say that um, Jesus was simply borrowed from an earlier deity or mythological, it's important to note that it's not our job to prove them wrong as such, um, but it is their job to provide support for their claim. So you can lead them in the right direction by asking a few simple questions. Questions like, what do you mean by that? So these kind of questions are clarifying questions. Ask them to elaborate so you can understand what they're talking about before you try and respond. Um, you can ask questions like, how did you come to that conclusion? So this is asking, where did you get this information from? What is your source of information? Um, normally when someone who comes out and says something like this, um, normally they've heard it from a friend or on Facebook or something. Um, and so it, if you ask them the question, how did you come to realize this? It's not normally I've studied all the you know, ancient documents and found this evidence. It's normally my friend told me. Uh, once you expose that in the conversation, like in a loving way, it usually removes all force from the argument. And then it just allows everything to just chill. You know? um, that's, that's always a nice way to start any kind of conversation. Um, then the following question, which follows naturally, is um, have you ever considered? So this is a good question to ask because it, first of all, opens the mind of the objector or the person who's listening. Um, and it, it sort of exposes for both of you or whoever is there talking whether this person's actually interested in new information um, and interested in truth or if they're just wanting some sort of excuse to not, not believe. Um, so it's great because it can open a gospel conversation. Um, have you ever considered um, the historical evidence for Jesus? Have you ever considered looking into the life of Jesus? Um, so that's a win. Um, you, you want people to know Jesus, but also it's also a win to expose deliberate ignorance as well in a loving way, hoping that that then leads them to come back to um, a search for truth. So there's a few questions you can follow up on, on someone who talks like that. Um, that's been my experience on it anyway. So the Jesus mythicist position, for reasons above and others, is considered extremely fringe when it comes to um, modern scholarship today. Take atheistic historian and scholar Bart Ehrman, who is known as the leading secular authority on the historicity of Jesus. He was confronted by someone in a Q&A um, denying that Jesus ever existed. And again, it'll be better to let him say, speak for himself. Can we play that second video? I cannot see evidence in archaeology or history for his historical Jesus. Yeah, well, I do. I mean, uh, that's why I wrote the book. Well, I mean, okay, yeah. I mean, I have a whole book on it. <laughs> I mean, uh, so th there is a lot of evidence. I mean, there, there is so much evidence that it is, it is not, I mean, I know in the, in the crowds you all run around with, it's commonly thought that Jesus did not exist. Let me tell you, once you get outside of your conclave, there's nobody who, I mean, this is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. 
It is not an issue for scholars. There is no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. Now, that is not evidence. That is not evidence. Just because everybody thinks so doesn't make it evidence. But if you want to know about the theory of evolution versus the theory of creationism, and every scholar in every reputable institution in the world thinks it believes in evolution, it may not be evidence, but if you've got a different opinion, you better have a pretty good piece of evidence yourself. There, the reason for thinking Jesus exists is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. That's why. And I give the details in my book. Uh, early and independent sources uh, indicate that Jesus, certainly that Jesus existed. One author that we know about knew Jesus' brother and knew Jesus' closest disciple, Peter. He's an eyewitness to both Jesus' closest disciple and his brother. So, I mean, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, again, I, res- I respect your disbelief, but I, I, you know, if you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that, I think that atheists have done themselves a, mis- a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism because, frankly, it makes... It makes you look foolish to the outside world. It's, if that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. Uh, you, you are much better off going with historical evidence and arguing historically rather than coming up with the theory that Jesus didn't exist. You can see why he's um, a Christian's favorite atheist. He's a really likable guy, but he's our favorite. Um, so he's an atheist. You know, he, he's not a Christian, but when you look at the historical evidence... He says, yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all there. So if you follow the evidence, you, um, you end up accepting what's commonly known as the three or four basic um, minimal facts of the resurrection, or at least of, our explanation is the resurrection, but of the facts that surround the life and following of Jesus. Um, so again, if you're ever confronted with the objection that um, these historians have a bias towards Jesus, and therefore that's why they believe it. Um, you know, it's not the case. Um, we have plenty of secular and atheistic scholars. Um, John Dominic Crossan, who was a big name before he um, stepped down, and um, Gert Ludemann, there's a few others that are big atheistic scholars that would just disagree and say, no, it's all, pretty much everyone agrees that the historical evidence is clear that Jesus existed. Um, so the evidence in support of the crucifixion is amongst the least contested of the historical facts. This is hardly a point of contention, um, as we've seen amongst scholars and historians. So a lot could be said more from here on the, on the crucifixion, and we'll go back to that in, in a little bit. Uh, but we're going to turn to the burial right now. Um, the, we're going to look at the historical facts for the burial of, of Jesus Christ and assess that. So after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. This fact is highly significant because it means, contrary to radical critics like John um, Dominic Crossan from the Jesus Seminar, that the location of Jesus' burial site was known to Jew and Christian alike. In that case, the disciples could never have proclaimed his resurrection in Jerusalem if the tomb had not been empty. New Testament researchers have established this first fact on the basis of the following evidence. Fact number one. Jesus' burial is attested in the very old tradition quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5, where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that he had appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Paul not only uses the typical rabbinical terms received and delivered with regard to the information he is passing on to the Corinthians, but verses 3 to 5 is a highly stylized four-line formula filled with non-Pauline characteristics. This has convinced all scholars that Paul is, as he says, quoting from an old tradition that um, has simply been passed on to him that he received after becoming a Christian. 
This tradition probably goes back to at least Paul's fact-finding visit to Jerusalem in around AD 36, when he spent two weeks with Cephas and James in Galatians 1, uh, verses 18 um, explains that. It thus dates to within five years, and that's quite conservative, that number. Most people agree it's, it's around within five years, um, but you'll see some agree that it's even closer. Within five years of the crucifixion of Jesus itself. So this is a creed we're talking about that is virtually as old as Christianity itself. This creed was spread very, very early, and Paul here is referencing it in, um, in his letter. To add to the case, skeptic scholars such as Robert Funk, who is the founder of the Jesus Seminar, and Gerd Ludemann, an atheist scholar, concede that early development of this creed no later than two to three years after the resurrection. This creed represents what is, was on the lips of the earliest apostles and followers of Jesus. Either way, this short time span and such personal contact make it unreasonably idle to talk of legend in this case. Uh, fact number three. Along with the early creed, we have very early burial evidence. The burial story is part of the very old source material found um, used by Mark in writing his gospel. The gospels tend to consist of brief snapshots of Jesus' life, which are loosely connected but are not always chronologically ordered throughout the gospels. But when we come to the passion story, we do have one smooth, continuous story. This suggests that the passion story was one of Mark's sources of information in writing his gospel. Now, most scholars think that Mark is already the earliest gospel, and Mark's source for Jesus' passion is, of course, even older or closer to the event itself. So we're getting very early here. Comparison of the narratives of the four gospels shows that their accounts do not diverge from one another until after the burial. This strongly implies that the burial account was part of the original information passed on to Paul. Again, its great age just simply militates any talking of um, legendary usage. Um, point number four. As a member of the Jewish court that condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely to be a Christian invention. There was strong resentment against the Jewish leadership for their role in the condemnation of Jesus, as shown in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. It is therefore highly improbable that Christians would invent a member of the court that condemned Jesus, who honours Jesus by giving him a proper burial, instead of allowing him to be dispatched as just a common criminal. No other competing burial story exists. If the burial of Joseph were fictitious, we would expect to find some other historical trace of what had actually happened to Jesus' corpse, or at least some competing legends. Um, but all of our sources are unanimous on Jesus' honourable interment by um, Joseph. So, for these and other reasons, the majority of New Testament critics concur that Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, according to the late John A.T. Robinson um, of Cambridge University. The burial of Jesus is the tomb. In the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. So that is the crucifixion and the burial. So we now turn to the three major facts. So these, these are the three big dogs that we're going to be covering here. Um, and we're going to let Dr. William Lane Craig explain these. So could we play video number three, please? Was crucified. Because he made outrageous claims about himself, he claimed to be the one and only Son of God. Why would anyone take his claim seriously? Well, that all depends. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then his claim to be God's unique son carries considerable weight. On the other hand, if the resurrection never actually happened, then Jesus may be safely dismissed as just another interesting but tragic historical figure. Did Jesus rise from the dead? As we explore this question, we need to address two further questions. What are the facts that require explanation? 
And which explanation best accounts for these facts? There are three main facts that need to be explained. The discovery of Jesus' empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death, and the disciples' belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's examine each of these. Fact number one. The discovery that Jesus' tomb was empty is reported in no less than six independent sources, and some of these are among the earliest materials to be found in the New Testament. This is important because when an event is recorded by two or more unconnected sources, historians' confidence that the event actually happened increases, and the earlier these sources are dated, the higher their confidence. Moreover, the Gospels indicate that it was women who first discovered that Jesus' body was missing. This is likely historical because in that culture, a woman's testimony was considered next to worthless. A later legend or fabrication would have had men make this discovery. Our confidence in the empty tomb is further increased by the response of the Jewish authorities. When they heard the report that the tomb was found empty, they said that Jesus' followers had stolen his body, thereby admitting that Jesus' tomb was, in fact, empty. Most scholars, by far, hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two. The appearances of Jesus alive after his death. In one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, Paul provides a list of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Finally, he appeared also to me. Furthermore, various resurrection appearances of Jesus are independently confirmed by the Gospel accounts. On the basis of Paul's testimony alone, virtually all historical scholars agree that various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Fact number three, the disciples' belief in the resurrection. After Jesus' crucifixion, his followers were devastated, demoralized, and hiding in fear for their lives. As Jews, they had no concept of a Messiah who would be executed by his enemies, much less come back to life. The only resurrection Jews believed in was a universal event on Judgment Day after the end of the world, not an individual event within history. Moreover, in Jewish law, Jesus' crucifixion as a criminal meant that he was literally under God's curse. Yet somehow, despite all of this, the disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead. They were so completely convinced that, when threatened with death, not one of them recanted. Even the Pharisee Paul, who persecuted Christians, suddenly became a Christian himself, as did Jesus' skeptical younger brother, James. Some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. That is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. These three firmly established facts cry out for an adequate explanation. How do you make sense of them? Down through history, various naturalistic explanations have been offered to explain away these facts. The conspiracy hypothesis, the apparent death hypothesis, the hallucination hypothesis, and so on. All of these have been nearly universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there is just no plausible naturalistic explanation of these three facts. The explanation given by the original eyewitnesses is that God raised Jesus from the dead. 
If it's even possible that God exists, then that explanation cannot be ruled out. For a God who is able to create the entire universe, the odd resurrection would be child's play. An empty tomb, Jesus' appearances alive after his death, and a group of dejected followers suddenly transformed by a radical new belief in a risen Messiah. These are independently established historical facts. How do you explain them? Pretty cool, hey? It's good stuff. So in summary, there are these four facts that um, are known as historical, um, his- historically certain. And um, the majority of scholars, as we've seen, um, and have written, have written on these subjects with any adequate historical hypothesis, they've had to account for these four Jesus' entombment by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery of the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and then the origin of the disciples' um, sincere belief. Now that brings us to our second point this evening. We've just had a look at the facts, now we want to look at the explanation of the facts. It's important to know that when we look at any particular fact, we must be careful to distinguish between a fact and an explanation of the fact. Consider the following thought experiment. Say you walk out your front door and you recognize your car in the driveway is wet and underneath the car on the driveway it's also wet as long as as well as the grass and the land closely around it. It's all completely saturated and so you think to yourself well maybe maybe it rained Um, and so you you also know that if it had have rained there would be wet area everywhere on the road in front of you on the, the next door neighbor's house And so you look around and you recognize too that it's all dry. It's dry everywhere else, but it's only wet at this car. So if you synthesize those two facts, one being that the car is wet, but the second being that nowhere else is wet, that explanation of it it raining, um, it no longer really is, is credible. It fails to make sense of all of the data that's there. So then you start thinking, well, why is the car wet? I mean, what's another explanation? Maybe somebody was washing the car. And so if that's true, you would expect to see some kind of evidence of that. And let's say you walk around the side of the house and you see a bucket, it's got a sponge and it's got some soap and there's a hose that's slightly dripping. That evidence would, would it confirm that hypothesis or would it contradict it? It would, it would confirm it. It would be in line with that, right? And so you have two explanations the same facts are there. One explanation fails to make sense of all of the data, all the facts, and another explanation actually makes sense of that. So what can we know from this? We can see from the above scenario that the fact of the wet car did not automatically explain how it came to be wet um, or why it was wet. It needed an explanation that went beyond the mere facts. And we also saw that not every explanation is equally likely only the explanations that, that better or most likely match the data are the preferred ones. And likewise, the explanations that fail to take into account all of the facts are simply put aside or removed from the, um, from the pool of ideas or current possibilities. Now that we have a bit of grip on the nature of facts and explanations, let us turn to now the present subject at hand. Given the previously established historical facts surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus, how now do we best explain these facts? Let's move on to that fourth video, shall we? ...record that Jesus of Nazareth died and his body was placed in a tomb. It's also been firmly established that after his death and burial, his tomb was found empty. Various individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive. And his disciples somehow became absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. These are the historical facts. How do you explain them? Down through history, various naturalistic explanations have been offered to explain away these facts. Let's examine the four most popular ones. 
First, the conspiracy theory. According to this view, the disciples faked the resurrection. They stole Jesus' body from the tomb and then lied about seeing Jesus alive, thereby perpetrating the greatest hoax of all time. However, this theory faces overwhelming objections. It's hopelessly anachronistic. It looks at the disciples' situation through the rearview mirror of Christian history instead of from the standpoint of a first-century Jew. Jews had no concept of a Messiah who would be defeated and executed by Israel's enemies, much less rise from the dead. In Jewish thinking, the resurrection of the dead was a general event that takes place only after the end of the world and has no connection at all with the Messiah. The conspiracy theory also fails to address the disciples' obvious sincerity. People don't willingly die for something they know is not true. An honest reading of the New Testament makes it clear. These people sincerely believed the message they proclaimed and were willing to die for. For these and other reasons, no scholar defends the conspiracy theory today. A second attempt to explain the facts is the apparent death theory. Jesus didn't really die. He revived in the tomb, somehow escaped, and managed to convince his disciples he was risen from the dead. This theory also faces insurmountable obstacles. First, it's medically impossible. The Roman executioners were professionals. They knew what they were doing and made sure their victims were dead before taken down. Moreover, Jesus was tortured so extensively that even if he was taken down alive, he would have died in the sealed tomb. Second, this theory is wildly implausible. Seeing a half-dead man who crawled out of the tomb, desperately in need of bandaging and medical attention, would hardly have convinced the disciples that he was gloriously risen from the dead. As a result, no New Testament historians defend this theory today. A third explanation is the displaced body theory. Perhaps Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body in his tomb temporarily because it was convenient. But later, he moved the corpse to a criminal's common graveyard. So, when the disciples visited the first tomb and found it empty, they concluded that Jesus must have risen from the dead. Once again, this theory cannot make sense of the facts. Jewish laws prohibited moving a corpse after it was interred, except to the family tomb. What's more, the criminal's graveyard was located close to the place of execution, so that burial there would not have been a problem. Also, once the disciples began to proclaim Jesus' resurrection, Joseph would have corrected their mistake. So, once again, no current scholars endorse this theory. Finally, the hallucination theory. The disciples didn't really see Jesus, but just imagined that he appeared before them. They were all hallucinating. This theory also faces considerable problems. First, Jesus appeared not just one time, but many times. Not just in one place, but in different places. Not just to one person, but to different persons not just to individuals, but to groups of people, and not just to believers, but to unbelievers as well. There is nothing in the psychological casebooks on hallucinations comparable to these resurrection appearances. Second, hallucinations of Jesus would have led the disciples to believe at most that Jesus had been transported to heaven, not risen from the dead in contradiction to their Jewish beliefs. Moreover, in the ancient world, visions of the deceased were not evidence that the person was alive, but evidence that he was dead and had moved on to the afterworld. Finally, this theory doesn't even attempt to explain the empty tomb. Thus, the four most popular naturalistic theories fail to explain the historical facts. Where does that leave us? Another possibility is the explanation given by the original eyewitnesses that God raised Jesus from the dead. 
Unlike the other theories, this makes perfect sense of the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus alive, and the disciples' willingness to die for their belief. But is this explanation plausible? After all, it requires a miracle, a supernatural act of God. Think about it. If it's even possible that God exists, then miracles are possible, and this explanation cannot be ruled out. And surely it's possible that God exists. So how do you explain the resurrection? When we look at the explanation, most um, scholars probably remain agnostic when it comes to the explanation of the facts. However, the Christian can maintain that the hypothesis that best explains these facts is that God had raised Jesus from the dead. In his book, Justifying Historical Descriptions, historian C.B. McCulloch lists six tests which historians use in determining which is the best explanation for any given fact, especially historical fact. The hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead passes all of these tests. Test number one, it has great explanatory scope. It explains why the tomb was found empty, why the disciples saw post-mortem appearances of Jesus and why the Christian faith came into being. Number two, it has great explanatory power. It explains why the body of Jesus was gone, why people repeatedly saw Jesus after he had died, despite his earlier public execution and so forth. Number three, it is plausible. Given the historical context of Jesus' own unparalleled life and claims... The the resurrection serves as divine confirmation to those radical claims. It's not ad hoc or contrived. It requires only one additional hypothesis, that God exists. And that doesn't need to be an extra hypothesis if you already believe that God does exist, as most people do. It is in accord with accepted beliefs. The hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead doesn't in any way conflict with the accepted belief that people don't na- not rise naturally from the dead. The Christian can accept both these beliefs as wholeheartedly as he accepts the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead. And um, test number six, it far outstrips any of its rival hypotheses in meeting conditions one through to five. Down through history, various alternative explanations of these facts have been offered as we saw, a few of these were the conspiracy and hallucination theories. Um, and over time, it's come to a conclusion uh, that none of these naturalistic hypotheses um, succeeds in meeting the conditions, as well as the historical um, resurrection hypothesis. Let's take a closer look at just two of those before we uh, move on and wrap up. I want to look at the swoon theory or the apparent death theory, because this one is probably one of the more common ones that comes up when discussing the resurrection. Let's consider this swoon theory for a minute. This explanation, as we saw, claims that Jesus was alive, that he appeared to die, that he was buried, that the empty tomb was discovered by a group of his women followers, that he had appeared to individuals and groups afterwards, and so on. It can also make a lot of sense of the fact that um, the disciples had sincere beliefs on his resurrection or in his resurrection. But the point of contention here is that Jesus didn't actually die, but it just appeared to. Perhaps he had just fainted on the cross, or perhaps he was drugged, and so people thought he was just dead. Firstly, it's important to understand from the beginning that Jesus would have most likely been in excellent physical condition. As a carpenter by trade, his workload would have participated and included heavy physical labour. In addition, he spent much of his ministry travelling on foot across the countryside. So his stamina and strength were most likely um, very well developed. With that in mind, it's clear just how much that Jesus would most likely have suffered. If this torture could break a man, 
in such good shape, it must have been truly a horrific experience. Jesus had been beaten repeatedly and lashed with a Roman scourge before his crucifixion. The leather scourge, which is a type of whip, was designed to inflict maximum pain and damage on the victim. It was braided with pieces of bone and metal in the ends that would um, tear into the flesh with each strike. Uh, The scourge would then rip into the underlying muscles and produce strips of quivering, bleeding flesh. Eusebius, a third century historian, reports that the sufferer's veins were laid bare, that the very muscles, sinews and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. So many victims would die from the scourging um, long before that they actually died from um, the crucifixion itself due to excessive blood loss and um, heavy trauma or internal organ problems. When someone was crucified, they would try to stay alive by pushing up with their feet so they could continue breathing. And so usually in order to kill the crucified victims, the soldiers would break the legs of the uh, victims so that they could no longer push up and breathe. The Bible tells us in the 19th chapter of John that the soldiers first broke the legs of the other two um, men who were nailed there. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he had already died. And so they didn't break his legs. This is because it appeared to the soldiers that because he was already dead, there was no need. So instead, they stabbed him with a spear into his side just to make sure of it. The Gospel of John says that one of the soldiers stuck his spear into Jesus' side and out came blood and water. This is due to the separation of the heavier red blood cells that sit below and the light watery plasma above due to the fact that Jesus' dead body had been dead for quite some time. It allowed that separation to be uh, clear. Synthesize this with the fact that the man who had allowed Jesus' death, Pilate, was surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. He called the centurion, who was in charge of the execution, to come and see him. This can be found in Mark's Gospel in chapter 15. A man named Joseph of Arimathea was brave enough to ask Pilate for the body of Christ. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had already died and he called in the army officer to find out if Jesus actually had been dead for very long. After the officer told him, Pilate let Joseph have Jesus' body. It is also known that if the centurion had messed up on the execution, then he likely too would have been put to death instead. So for his very own life, he would have made absolutely sure that Jesus was definitely dead before he removed him from that cross. And to say that Jesus was drugged just simply ignores the facts that we have in the Gospels, where um, in Mark chapter 15 it tells us they gave him some wine mixed with the drug to ease the pain, but Jesus uh, refused to drink it. Although the swoon theory, or apparent death theory, can account for much of the facts, it fails to account for all of the facts. And so, therefore, it leaves the remaining fact of Jesus' death to cry out for an alternative explanation. Let's take a look at just one more, the hallucination theory. This theory attempts to account for the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus by claiming the both auditory and visual hallucinations on part of the disciples and the followers of Jesus. Proponents of this view claim that Jesus' disciples really did see Jesus but that these sightings were merely subjective hallucinations in the minds of the individuals, not genuine encounters with a resurrected man. The hallucinations or sightings are claimed to have happened repeatedly and are said to have been so vivid um, as to convince the Christ followers um, that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. Very intense hallucinations, apparently. From the outset, the hallucination is, as we saw, beset with problems. First, we now know that anticipation and expectation play a crucial role in the occurrence of hallucinations. This, by itself, makes the disciples poor candidates for such experiences. The disciples were understandably depressed, sorrowful, and deeply grieved that their beloved leader had been violently violently taken from them and executed. All four Gospels describe the disciples as not expecting to see Jesus resurrected. 
In fact, some even doubted that they, that afterwards that Jesus appeared to them in Matthew 28, 16 and 17. It does not seem that any of Jesus' disciples were in the proper mindset to be likely candidates for hallucinations. Second, the diversity of the appearances makes hallucinations an unlikely explanation. Jesus appeared to numerous individuals and under various circumstances and locales. He appeared both indoors and outdoors. He appeared not just on one particular day, but over a period of weeks. He appeared to people of different backgrounds and personality types, to believers and unbelievers alike. Probably the most formidable obstacle for the hallucination theory to overcome is its failure to explain appearances to groups of people. As clinical psychologist Gary A. Sibsey has commented, I have surveyed the professional literature, peer-reviewed journal articles and books, written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades, and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. Decades, that is, in event for what more than one person purportedly shared in a visual or other sensory perception, where there was clearly no external referent. Psychologist Gary Collins was no less clear when he remarked, hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their very nature, only one person can see a given hallucination at a time. These certainly aren't something which can be seen by a group of people. Neither is it possible that one person could somehow induce a hallucination into another person. Since a hallucination exists only in the subjective, personal sense, it is obvious that others cannot witness it. And yet Jesus not only appeared to numerous individuals, but to groups. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that he, he, was, he appeared to more than 500 at once. Um, so we have groups of people that just cannot have hallucinations. Some try to defend this by pointing to examples of group delusion, if there's a difference. Some as the weeping, such as the weeping statue of Mary. Here groups of people have reported to have witnessed tears of water or oil, or some have even said blood coming down from the cheeks of the statue of Mary. So the argument goes, just as these group sightings are illusory, so too are the group appearances um, of Jesus' resurrected body. Something that's worth noting is that even if groups do report to see the statue of Mary tears, Mary's you know, tearing, there is one important difference, and that is what we touched on earlier, anticipation and expectation. These groups expect and anticipate to see tears. And so, in, in a sense, you're looking for it. But when you consider the Gospels and you consider the apostles and the followers of Jesus, they were not anticipating or expecting to see a resurrected Jesus, quite the opposite. And so, likewise, this theory too cannot make much sense of the totality of the facts and therefore explains why virtually nobody defends this view anymore in um, contemporary scholarship. And so on and so on, the alternative explanations come and they go. Bart Ehrman, who was shown earlier, also agrees that these four basic historical evidences that we have um, are historically certain. However, he openly admits that because his worldview cannot make sense of the Christian God, he is left to reject the reasonable conclusion of the facts, which is that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Um, when he was asked, how do you explain the facts, seeing as you admit to them, he just said, I, I don't claim to have an explanation of the facts. He just says, I have to hold the facts in tension, and he doesn't give an explanation for them. Um, I think that's interesting as a Christian, that somebody would be honest about it, but just to say, I have no explanation. Um, that says to me that the logical implication of it is that um, the Christian's claim is true. That's what that appears like to me. But um, he's a very smart man. I wouldn't debate him on that. Um, now, this puts the sceptical critic in a rather awkward and desperate situation. A few years ago, there was a famous debate on the resurrection of Jesus between Dr. William Lane Craig and a professor at the University of California. He had written his doctoral dissertation on the resurrection, 
and he was thoroughly familiar with the evidence. He could not deny the fact of Jesus' honourable burial, his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' sincere belief in the resurrection. So his only recourse was to come up with some alternative explanation. So he argued that Jesus of Nazareth had an unknown, identical twin brother who was separated from him as an infant and grew up independently from him, but who came back to Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, stole Jesus' body from the tomb, this is in a serious debate, by the way, um, and presented himself to the disciples who mistakenly inferred that this was Jesus who, is, who had written from, risen from the dead, right? Yeah. That's the truth. That's what happened. Um, I, won't, I won't go into the details how William Lane Craig refuted that, but um, I think this example is, is illustrative of the desperate attempts that um, skeptics sometimes have to go to in order to explain away the facts. Um, that's encouraging for a Christian to know that the facts or at least the evidences that we have um, support our beliefs. Um, for someone who, in, who appreciates facts and truth, as all Christians should, that should be very comforting. We're running out of time, so I want to just briefly jot down our um, point number three, the significance of the resurrection. So we have facts, we have the explanation. Um, why does this even matter? Is this significant? We've seen tonight that there is good historical evidence that strongly supports the resurrection hypothesis. And I think that when you combine this evidence with other evidence that we've gone through over our worldview series, scientific and philosophical evidence that we've seen from the origin of the universe, from DNA to miracles, uh, we come away with a powerful cumulative case uh, for why belief in the Christian God is reasonable. The significance of the resurrection of Jesus lies in the fact that it is not just any old Joe Blow who has been raised from the dead, but it is Jesus of Nazareth, whose crucifixion was instigated by the Jewish leadership because of his blasphemous claims to divine authority. If this man has been raised from the dead, then the God who he allegedly blasphemed has clearly vindicated his claims. Thus, in an age of religious relativism and pluralism, the resurrection of Jesus constitutes a solid rock on which Christians can take their stand for God's decisive self-revelation in Jesus. Importantly, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then this also confirms all of Jesus' other teachings. If somebody rises from the dead, I'm going to go with what he thinks and what he says over what anybody else says. It confirms that Jesus is our Saviour and that he is our Lord. That miracles are certainly possible. That our personal and collective value and identity is reaffirmed and gloriously established. That his ascension to the Father to prepare an eternal place for us shows his authority over heaven and over earth. All things. His second coming to judge the living and the dead and establish God's endless kingdom. And lastly, it confirms our absolute hope beyond the grave. Because if Jesus has risen, then we too will rise to eternal life with him, as Jesus promised. Church, because Jesus is risen, we don't have to wait until we die to have newness of life. We can have newness of life today. Our salvation is not dependent on how faithful that we have been to Christ, but on how faithful God has been to us in Jesus. Jesus said that it is finished. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, he has the authority to say that I am the way, that I am the truth, and that I am the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me that I am the resurrection and that I am the life. The one believing in me, even if he should die, he will live. Romans 10.13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This also means at the end of the day, because Jesus has defeated sin and death, no amount of sadness or suffering can ultimately remove 
that joy that is set before us because Christ is risen and that is enough. The resurrection of Jesus, church, is the answer to life, death and beyond. If you're here tonight and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, why not? What prevents you from surrendering your life to Jesus? What could be more important? If there is anyone here who would like to receive Jesus as their Lord and Saviour tonight, uh, I would love to be able to pray with you. And um, we're going to close tonight with a prayer for anyone who wants to uh, make that declaration um, this evening. Perhaps you're, you're, you're new to Christianity or new to church. Um, we really want to give you this opportunity to be able to receive Jesus as your Lord. Um, because he's risen from the dead, he has the authority, and, and we owe him our lives um, because of who he is and what he's done. And so um, perhaps also you're somebody who's walked away from God and you want to come back to God. Um, this is a moment, too, where you can pray. Um, I want to lead in a prayer, and, and you can follow after me. So, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today humbly, and we surrender our lives to you. We believe that Jesus Christ was born free of sin, and he died on the cross as payment for my sin. He also rose from the dead. I believe in your gift, Lord Jesus, of salvation and eternal life because of the sacrifice that you made. God, today I repent and I turn from my old life. Because of your mercy and grace, I can have eternal life. Today I ask for newness of life with you, Lord Jesus. And by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for forgiving me and making me brand new. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer for the first time... Um, we would love it if you come and speak to somebody, either myself or uh, one of the pastors down the front. We would love to meet you and um, uh, welcome you home with us and um, help you grow in Jesus. Um, if that is you, that is the best decision that you'll ever make. And so um, I'm very privileged to be able to um, share that tonight. Well, that concludes this evening. Um, we've gone slightly over, so... I trust that tonight's been faith-building and um, enjoyable. And so um, be blessed. Enjoy uh, the rest of your evening. And um, if you want to give, there, um, you can give at the Hub. Um, and there are stations. And also you can give online if you wish to do so as well. Um, but have a blessed week. And we'll see you guys next Sunday. If you would like more information or resources on this or other topics, or if you would like to sow into this ministry financially to help us share messages just like this one each week, please visit our website at brainer.org.au.